This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to the Friday morning sporting edition of Pacific Beats. I'm Richard Ewart and coming up, uh, the Cummels' Nene McDonald puts his hand up to play for PNG in the NRL. I need to make the NRL team now so I can come back right now. <laughs> I'll play with them straight away. I think it'll be awesome for the game. Why World Rugby's latest grand plan leaves Tonga and Samoa out in the cold again. If you've seen the games over the last two weeks, they've probably been the most intense, physical, skillful games ever in history at Rugby Union. They've been absolutely amazing. We have to actually be able to play against these teams so that we can try and bridge that gap. And new pairing, same objective. Vanuatu out to hold on to beach volleyball gold at the Pacific Games. It's a new club now and... Um... Um, she's like now she's strong and uh, she confidence in herself. She got confidence and she uh, plays strong. So yeah, I'm so happy and glad that I can play with her. More to come from gold medal hopeful Sherison Toko later in the program. First, though, tickets for the Pacific Games in Solomon Islands have gone on sale this week, sparking a rise in public interest ahead of the opening ceremony in just over three weeks from now. It'll be the first time since 1983 that a new host nation has been added to the list, the Solomons being just the seventh country to stage the event in its 60-year history. This year's Games are likely to attract more international interest than usual because of what is perceived as China's growing influence in the country and their funding of the brand-new main stadium is seen as a symbol of Beijing's involvement. But the chief executive of the organising committee, Peter Stewart, a veteran of more than a dozen previous multi-sports events, is very much focused on the sport and the desire to ensure that the first-time host nation puts on the best show it can. Part of that process has involved the pricing of the tickets to ensure that as many people as possible can afford to sample the sporting action. It was certainly a challenge for us. We always had in our mind that we wanted our tickets to be accessible to the average person. So we looked at the only other area where there was ticket sales previously, which is football matches here, and we considered that. And then we took into account if you were mum and dad and three children, how much would it cost you and how much could you afford to be able to go to a session? And then our board were very involved in weighing up a whole heap of options. And what we've come up with, we think, is a range of packages that are very accessible, but at the same time meet our requirements for a return because we need to balance the budget, of course. So the average general admission ticket is $30. That's about six Australian dollars. What we're trying to do is to make it that anybody could take a family to a session without too much trouble. Then we have some packages where you can choose a particular sport or a particular venue. And the value that we have here is that we have a number of sports in most of our venues. So you buy a venue ticket and you can go in and you can watch any sport that is at that venue. So in the case of Sports City, which is where the main stadium is, On a particular week, you can go in and watch athletics or you could watch football or you could watch rugby in the main stadium, but also within the precinct is also the aquatic centre, is also the tennis, is also what's called the friendship hall, which will have netball and basketball and volleyball in. So effectively, if you come in at 8 o'clock in the morning, you could stay until perhaps 9 o'clock at night and watch multiple sports 
and have a, a real day out still just for that $30 ticket. Do you think that there will be a strong element of curiosity at play here? People will want to take a look, find out, investigate. Do you think it might work that way? We certainly hope that's the case. We hope that people will have the opportunity to sit and watch sports they've never seen before. We'll have some sports presenters on at every venue, helping to explain the sport to people who come and see a sport for the very first time. And we also have a number of free events, sports that we're not charging a ticket to because either it is not a very popular sport here in Solomon Islands and we're trying to encourage crowds to come and watch and support the athletes, or because it just makes sense to be able to provide some free events for people to come and watch. So, for example, touch rugby, archery, and all of the events at the You Meet Together Water Sports Centre, bar, kayaking, open water swimming and sailing, all of those events are free to the public. So we're hoping that there are a lot of people will get to see a number of sports they've never seen before. And we're sure that they'll enjoy it because this is a leap competition and there's some great athletes competing. But also we hope that it will leave a legacy for the national federations, that they'll be able to attract new participants to their particular sport. You, of course, have been involved in organising a number of multi-sports events in the past. I recall meeting you at Port Moresby before the Pacific Games in 2015. Over the years, are there particular lessons that you've learned that make the task of organising these Pacific Games perhaps a little easier, or, or does each event throw up its own problems? This is my 12th Games. You'd like to think that it would get easier and easier, but every Games is different. Every Games is unique. Every city is unique. They all have their own challenges. They all have their own idiosyncrasies. And something that worked in one Games may not work in another Games. And sometimes the resources that you had in one city, you may not have in another city. So certainly there are some broad lessons. You know the key things that need to happen. So, for example, as long as athletes can sleep well at night, can eat well, can get to their venues, their fields of play are good and their technical officials are good, they're happy. So you focus on those sort of functional areas and that must be right and then you've got a little bit of leeway with some of the things that happens with spectators and other guests and other activities around the games. I'm wondering also, are these games perhaps a little different to certainly past Pacific Games for one big reason, that these games are not just going to be about sport. There is going to be the geopolitical overtone and because of the debate that's going on in the Pacific about China's involvement in in all the Pacific Island nations. And, of course, they've had a big involvement in helping to uh, build the facilities for the Pacific Games, not least the main stadium. I mean, do you feel under a different kind of scrutiny that people are going to be looking for angles that are maybe nothing to do with the sport? They may be, but it doesn't really have much of an impact on what we as the GOC do. We are focusing on delivering the two weeks of sport and competition for the Games and all the other things that happen outside around we have no control over so we tend to not worry too much about. And certainly the donor supporters for the Games from multiple countries including People's Republic of China and Australia and New Zealand and Saudi Arabia and Korea and a whole range of supporting donor nations have certainly contributed to the success of the Games and we couldn't have been able to deliver them without all of those nations working together to provide us with the facilities and the resources that we 
need. For a country like Solomon Islands, I think the hope is that something similar would have happened in Tonga four years ago. But as we all know, unfortunately, Tonga pulled out. Samoa took over the games, having hosted them before. For Solomon Islands, this, this is a brand new experience and, and the biggest sporting experience the country's ever had. Solomon Islands will get a chance to show the rest of the Pacific that some of the smaller nations, like the Tongas, can potentially host the games if they put all their resources together. And that's going to be one of the long-lasting benefits for the Pacific Games Council. If we can deliver a successful games, it opens the door for new nations and new cities to be able to bid for these games in the future. And we're seeing in Olympics and Commonwealth Games just how challenging that is becoming for those organisations. So the Pacific Games Council is very keen to see that we can do a good job here, which, as we say, it will open the door for other nations. Peter Stewart, CEO of the Pacific Games Organising Committee, on the line from Honiara. And uh, the main stadium for next month's Games has had its first uh, real workout over the last uh, couple of days. First of all, the Solomon Islands National Athletics Championships. And then last night, Solomon Warriors took on Central Coast with the prize of National Soccer Champions at stake. We can cross live to Honiara now and speak to our reporter, Kristen Rita Omana Leong. Uh, Kristen Rita, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good fellow morning. So tell me what's it been like for the last couple of days to actually see the stadium functioning and to see sport going on there and I believe spectators being allowed to go in and watch. Yes, Richard. Um, indeed, uh, it it surely has been a great past three days with many Solomon Islanders taking the opportunity to answer their curiosity, you know, to try and have a feel of what the stadium is like, the experience as it's all a, a new experience for Solomon Islanders. So last night um, at the match, both teams, you know, Central uh, Coast and Solomon Warriors displayed great football. And uh, in the season finale of the Telecom S League, uh, Solomon Warriors were sitting at the top of the standing before the game and they only needed a draw. Central Coast, on the other hand, were in third place and they were a point behind, so they were desperate for a win. But the men in blue, uh, the Central Coast, against uh, the uh, Solomon Warriors in red, um, at halftime, men in blue, they, they led at, uh, uh, at halftime 1-0, but Solomon Warriors equalised in the second half, sealing the much-needed point. So um, we are seeing that, uh, you know, Solomon Warriors will be going back to the OFC Champions League playoff after that uh, draw with uh, Central Coast. And it's the eighth uh, TSL title uh, for the for the uh, Solomon Warriors, while the Central Coast will be their second time. So both teams are true for, through for the uh, Champions League uh, playoff next year. And to do all that in the, in this brand new stadium, uh, that must have made the occasion a, a little bit more special. I mean, what what was the general reaction from from those involved? I mean, players, officials, people watching. Uh, what do they make of this new stadium that has been built for the games? It came as a it it came as a little bit of surprise, obviously, because Solomon Islanders are used to the home of football, which is the Los Antama Stadium. And so people came in, took their time to look around, um, uh, had had a little bit of experience in seeing, because it's a bit of uh, the height was uh, becoming an issue for some of them uh, for the stadium. But it wasn't only the um, match, uh, obviously, that was was the highlight, uh, as this was also the first time for the um, a soccer match to be played at the National Stadium. And in true solo style, the fans came out in numbers. Uh, there, the tickets, there were 4,000 tickets that were sold out, Richard, even before the match had started. And um, 
while we were getting into the stadium, they were selling more tickets. So we we were expecting 4,000 tickets to be sold, but there were more more tickets uh, being sold at the stadium. But there were families, supporters, even Prime Minister Manasi Sogavari and his, and his daughter came along to also watch uh, the game um, in front of the home crowd. And uh, through traffic, uh, rain, of course, there was some uh, downpour yesterday as we approached the cyclone season. So a little bit of a uh, a, a whole case scenario of what might come for the Pacific Games, but some fans that I spoke to, they had no single clue about what football is, but they only wanted to come in because the ticket was priced at four Australian dollars, which is around um, 20 Solomon dollars, and they just wanted to come and have a feel of what the actual stadium is. Um, some fans also found the entries to the game interesting, because as you'd understand or w- might know of, uh, for the for the um, for Solomon Islands to host such events, it's um, uh, to, that, that attract crowd of uh, the numbers that we saw last night. It's a bit unusual. So when when supporters and fans came in yesterday, they were taken by surprise because uh, usually we have lines like everyone just you know in one line, basically both uh, parents, families, and everyone just following a line. And you know the queue is usually um, not uh, what people expect. But yesterday's one, it had lines for mums, it had lines for families, those with bags. So people were taken a bit by uh, by surprise um, uh, for, for, for that aspect. But there was a flow and um, uh, people took their time to, you know, enjoy the game as well as just feel what was around um, in the National Stadium and the facilities as well, Richard. Sounds like it's all working very well, which is good ahead of the Pacific Games. Now, we, we had two days of athletics there as well, the National Championships, and I think You've been chatting to some of the athletes uh, involved. I mean, what, what what was the reaction of those actually taking part? I mean, did, did everything work as it was supposed to work for a big athletics meeting? Because, of course, track and field will be one of the star events of the Pacific Games. Indeed, uh, Richard, I, the national championship for the past two days, it was also a test event for the Games Organising Committee, given that, like, as I said earlier, you know, it's it's a whole new um, uh, event for Solomon Islands to host to host this event. So um, it, they had to test out uh, the volunteers, the cleaners were in action, police officers were there present on the ground, Red Cross, and, and even for the athletes, those that I spoke to, they um, found the event to be helpful, especially ahead of the Games, as they've only been exposed to training at the Solomon Islands National Institute of Sports or at the training tracks. So it was a whole new experience for them running on the tracks and just being able to take in the whole experience of after the tracks um, uh, being uh, escorted to the to the press section or the media section to have questions being an- asked and all that. It was a whole new experience for, for athletes and one that um, the Games Organising Committee have also identified some of the challenges that they've uh, faced during the two days, uh, particularly with communication and also, Richard, how to deal with the power outage because at the second day of the event, there was a power outage. Um, and um, also for the park and ride transport system, which will allow for spectators and fans to park their vehicles and you know use the shuttles to the uh, designated locations at the National Stadium. So all these have 
been some of the areas that the Games Organising Committee had identified in it, and they said it was a good opportunity for them to improve. And 23 days ago, Richard, massive operation for them, uh, for the Games Organising Committee, as they're expecting close to 8,000 people both athletes and visitors, and um, uh, that might also include you as well, Richard. That's the plan. Yes, uh, we uh, we hope to be there for the start of the uh, the sport and the opening ceremony on the nineteenth. But sounds like so far so good. Um, Chris and Rita, thanks so much for joining us uh, live from Honiara on Pacific Beat this morning. Thank you so much, Chris and Rita Amano Leong there, who was uh, in the stadium last night to see Solomon Warriors uh, clinch the national soccer championship in that brand new stadium. This after two days of the national athletics championship, so yeah, one or two hiccups wouldn't be the Pacific Games without hiccups or any other multi sports event for that matter. They don't all go perfectly, but uh, yeah, I reckon things are looking pretty good. Uh, the opening ceremony on the nineteenth of November, but the action actually starts on the seventeenth, so three weeks today. You're with Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. It's the Friday morning sporting edition. And the curious beast that is the Pacific Rugby League Championships resumes this weekend with what in effect will be two grand final rehearsals. In the Pacific Cup, Samoa are out of contention after two heavy defeats, leaving Australia and New Zealand to play each other in Melbourne tomorrow. And then, regardless of that result, they'll meet again in Hamilton seven days later when the Cup will be on the line. And with Cook Islands out of the picture after two losses, it's the same scenario for PNG in Fiji in the battle for the Pacific Bowl, as they're calling it, as their match in Port Moresby on Sunday will serve as a warm-up for the final when they meet again a week after that. Fiji scraped past the Cooks last weekend, 22-18, whereas a week earlier the Kumuls blew Cooks away, scoring nine tries in a 46-10 win, and Nane McDonald had a diet day out, scoring four of them. Shortly, we'll get his thoughts on the games to come against the body and the state of rugby league in P. G, but first, those tries. Labert's back, and he got a pass around the land, and McDonald with a try. Great combination, Labert and Lamb. That was a beautiful ball. Labert and Lamb, a little grubber towards the end goal, and uh, the ball spews out the back, and this might be another try straight after the break for PNG. Rimbu bursting through the middle, McDonald on the back up, and it's another one. That's his third. He's Lamb, McDonald for four tries. When I first put a Kummel's jersey on, it was 2013, and the only selection we had was Digicel Cup players, and now we have the luxury of picking boys from Super League, NRL, and development's come a long way, and we're definitely on the up and up. What do you make of the Fijian team? Because you're going to be playing them twice. Essentially, the first game is like a rehearsal for the final the following week when this Pacific Bowl will be up for grabs. they got a good team, and I think they might have taken Cook Islands a bit lightly, and um, we definitely didn't take them lightly. So they got a good team. Their back line is very stacked. They've got a lot of NRL experience there, so be a challenge. I think it does help us playing at home. A lot, a lot of the boys love playing in the season, I think when you first come here and play, it sort of slaps you in the face. And for you, of course, to, to come back to Papua New Guinea to play for the Kummels these days involves a, a long trip from Europe. You've been playing in England for a few years now. I mean, is that arduous? Do you sometimes think, I really wish I didn't have to make this journey, much as you want to play for your country? No, I think flying back to PNG is is like so exciting for me. I don't really look at it as a dread. It, it is a long way, but it, it's more exciting for me because I love coming back here, love playing and putting that jersey on. So it's special for me no matter no matter where I'm flying from. And your career up to date has taken you to a number of clubs in Australia and then subsequently over to England and you're on to your third club now uh, having signed for Salford Red Devils. I mean, 
how do you compare the two competitions, the NRL and Super League? Are, are they close to one another now? I think the top teams are NRL standard, but then I think there's like a massive drop off in the standard in the lower teams. But NRL is where it's at, and I think it's the toughest comp in the world for rugby league. And I think that Super League is on their way to doing that, but I definitely think NRL is the standard. But history tells us that PNG players sometimes have, have gone to England and have found it tough, uh, not least because of the terrible weather over there. But there have been other factors as well that have brought players home prematurely. But at the moment, there seem to be a significant number of PNG players who are, who are doing very, very well in England, not least yourself, of course. Can you explain why there's that change? I think the biggest thing now is the development of Papua New Guinean players because before they used to go over and they came straight from the Digicel Cup. It's a good competition, but the standard of that competition compared to the Queensland Cup, the boys now are getting chances to train with NRL clubs in pre-season and getting that taste of being a professional and playing with professional players and being with the best. So it makes that transition easier. The Hunters have created a program which is similar to an NRL program. So the boys know professionalism. I think they're just rocking up and playing every week in other comps, and now they come into regimented times, getting learning about being late. There's an issue. Not not training properly, not weighing properly, all the things that factor in. So they've got that upper hand, whereas before they would get sent away and their talent was good, but their professionalism wasn't the best. Is there more effort being put into player welfare as well? I mean, has that been an issue in the past with players perhaps, for want of a better word, being slightly abandoned when they're in a foreign country that is so different from their own? Yeah, I think that's a big hurdle. I think especially leaving PNG, it, it's so laid back, it's so cruisy, and being in Port Moresby, it's not that big of a city. Like you can get anywhere in ten minutes. There's no traffic, and then you get thrown into another country, and things are spread out, and everything's new to you. And there's train systems, and there's bus systems, and everything's completely different. And it, it is hard for a lot of boys that go either to Australia or overseas, and it is a big challenge. And I think it's a lot more difficult than someone leaving a country town in in Australia and going to the big city. It, it's a completely different transition. And tell me, what do you make of this new Pacific Rugby League? Well, it's championships plural, isn't it? Because uh, you guys are involved in uh, competing for the bowl and Australia, Samoa, New Zealand are involved in competing for the cup. Is it a little bit confusing? And in the end, I I guess maybe you don't care all that much as long as you're playing international games. But do you think it could be better organised? I think it's a great idea. I think we do need a lot more international games at the end of this season because we need to grow the game and we need to have all the teams prep for World Cup. I think it's due for a change as in we need to be challenging Australia, not just us, but other teams. And I think we're on the right track, but I definitely think things like this will help. But I think it's still a learning curve as well. And one last question. The speculation is that uh, the PNG bid for a place in the NRL is gathering momentum. A lot of people are saying they're in pole position to get that 18th spot. If they were to secure a place in the NRL, would you want to be part of it? Would you come back to play for them? They need to make the NRL team now so I can come back right now. I'll play with them straight away. I think it'll be awesome for the game. I think the passion's here, the number of fans are here, all the eyes on TV are here. It's just going to grow the game. And I think it's a great country to choose to put next in the NRL. Kumul's international Nene McDonald on the line from Port Moresby. Meanwhile, over in the UK, Mati Matanga will take on England in the second of three test matches at this time at John Smith Stadium in the Yorkshire town of Huddersfield, where I used to live a long time ago. But in the Women's Pacific Championship, there's no action at all for the Ireland teams this weekend, while the Australian Gillaroos will take on the Kiwi Ferns for a second time. But on this occasion, the winner gets the cup. It will actually be the Kiwis' third match of the championship, the Australians' second. The Pacific teams have played just one match each go figure.
And uh, the task of holding the front page this morning falls to uh, Talia Olatir, who has uh, been looking at the news from around the region. Good morning. Good morning, Richard. Um, Busy week in politics of Nauru, never the uh, easiest thing. Indeed. So on Wednesday, we saw President Russ Kuhn removed um, from the presidency after a vote of no confidence against him. He's been in that position since 2022. And then on Thursday, we saw two presidential candidates nominated, Rennie Gadabu and David but with a tie of nine votes each, a parliamentary recess was called. So today, people are going to be looking at the parliament as they will reconvene to again try and vote in a new president. Yes, it's a ticklish situation. I wonder how they're going to resolve it. Now, Kiribati to get a wharf upgrade, this thanks to a new deal between the US and Australia. Yeah, it comes after the Google internet cable deal as well. Reuters reports the two countries have pledged to co-finance maritime infrastructure in Kiribati and rebuild Canton Wharf. Now, during World War II, Canton Island was a US military base with a wharf big enough for large ships and a refuelling stop for flights between the United States and Australia. Now, Kiribati says that it wants a hotel there, so obviously a wharf will help um, bump up its tourism industry. Of course, the announcement comes after China has also had interest in Canton Island as well. In March, um, China sent experts to the atoll for a feasibility study to build a Canton Island airport. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one. That there's a little bit of controversy surrounding it. We'll see mm. how that one develops. Now, some more sporting news: uh, Pacific Excellence uh, on display. Nominees for the World Rugby Awards. Mm, this is when I feel like the dad from My Big Fat Greek Wedding because fly, <laughs> Flying Fijian coach Simon Raiwalui is up for Coach of the Year. In the men's 15 players, we have Adi Sevilla of New Zealand and Bundy Aki of Ireland. Now, we know that they are both of Samoan heritage. In fact, Aki in June last year was the first Samoan to captain Ireland. In the women's sevens player of the year, Fiji's Riepi Ulunisau is nominated, while in the men's we have Akila Rokolusoa of New Zealand, who is Fijian, and breakthrough player Mark Tellia from New Zealand is, of course, of Samoan heritage. So lots of Pacific representation amongst those nominees. The winner of the awards will be announced in a ceremony in Paris on Sunday, and the women's nominees um, will be announced next week, and their awards are early next month. Well, if it came down to how much cash they had at their disposal, Simon Raiwalui would win by a long way, wouldn't he? If he, he had hearts behind him in the world, <laughs> Simon Raiwalui would win by a long Absolutely. way. Maybe he will. I mm. mean, that, wouldn't that be fantastic? It might make him change his mind about <laughs> the standing down at the end of the year. Now, the PNG Football Association, uh, they've faced a lot of criticism over the last few months. Um, the National League currently is on hold, and apparently they're going to play finals after the Pacific Games. They have the Pacific Games in three weeks. And they've just appointed a men's head coach. That's right. Warren Moon has been appointed as the head coach of the PNG men's national football team. It seems just for the 2023 Pacific Games and a little bit after that. He is on a short three-month contract with two objectives, lead the um, the team at the Games and then help build a national development program. I don't know if three months is long enough to do that. Yeah. Um, President John Capinato said Mr Moon's appointment is an important step to strengthen and develop football in PNG. Interesting. I don't quite know what you do in three weeks. It'd probably take you three weeks to learn the players' names. Yeah, right? three months. Yeah, but yeah, exactly that. 
extraordinary. It'll be very interesting to see the commentary on social media. I'm sure it's already <laughs> begun. Dalia, thank you very much indeed for Thanks, that news Richard. update. You're with Pacific Beats here on ABC Radio Australia. It's the Friday morning uh, sporting edition. And uh, more now on the sport of rugby union because World Rugby have unveiled their grand plan with confirmation that a new global 12-team men's competition will be launched in 2026. It'll feature the teams from the six nations in Europe, the four teams in the rugby championship, so therefore Australia and New Zealand, and two teams yet to be selected. But the hot tip is those sides will be Japan and Fiji. So potentially great news for one Pacific nation then but for Samoa and Tonga they will have to settle for a revamped Pacific Nations Cup because until promotion and relegation is belatedly introduced they will be shut out of the global competition. Mano Samoa's head coach Salama Pasua says he's frustrated and disappointed that World Rugby have once again failed to grasp the needs of the tier two nations. I'm not sure what the future holds for Montesamo. Um, it seems like nothing's changed from the previous years. It's basically how it has been. The only difference is that they've just put a name to the games that already exist and solidified their fence. I suppose we won't be able to get access to, to more games against Tier 1 teams. And what we have now is a new competition set to start involving the teams from the Rugby Championship down here in the Southern Hemisphere and then the Six Nations in the Northern Hemisphere. And it looks highly likely that Fiji and Japan will also join that competition. So that really leaves Manu Samoa and Tonga out in the cold, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Not to mention every other Tier 2 team out there and the likes of Georgia, Uruguay, Chile, Portugal now. So it's pretty frustrating to see that basically (laughs) it's just an extended Six Nations and and, and Rugby Championship. And yet World Rugby's Chief Executive Alan Gilpin insists that this is a good move and that it will actually create a better set of opportunities for Tier 2 nations. But but clearly you would disagree with that. I guess your hope would be that you would play well enough in the new Pacific Cup competition to be promoted into this international competition that World Rugby had created, but you can't until, I think, 2032. Correct. You know, and I remember the initial talks around this global competition was basically shutting the growth and development of, of Tier 2 teams. We've got this new look PNC, Seven Nations Cup, that has been unveiled, I suppose, and it gives us a few extra games against some teams we play every year, as, as it is. So I'm still struggling to see how it's going to benefit us. And it seems to me that this plan potentially already has one very large hole in it because there is the the revised Pacific Nations Cup that you've talked about, which would feature as it stands Canada, Fiji, Japan, yourselves, Tonga, USA, due to start in 2024. But if, as we suspect, Fiji and Japan are promoted into this new global competition, what happens then? They can't play both, can they? I believe they can because the Six Nations still happens in the beginning of the year. The championship still runs August, September, so I believe that this Pacific Nations Cup will run alongside the same period as the Rugby Championship. That still frees up July and November for for Fiji and Japan to take part in the Nations Cup, I think it's called. Which would be... Marvellous for them. The number of test matches they would play in a calendar year would would just about double. Correct. Meanwhile, in Samoa, you're still struggling financially and you still can't get anybody to play you because World Rugby don't seem to want to create the environment where that can happen. There's been uh, statements made and, and promises made around crossover games in the alternative years. So that's when the Lions tours on and we'll basically be playing England Day 
Wales Day, Scotland Day, Ireland Day during that period as, as the Lions will take precedent. But what that doesn't do is help you to move the team forward and, and to close the gap that you identified during the World Cup. And based on the Manu Samoa's performances, that gap is is actually quite small. Correct. And whilst the results are the same, I think, in terms of performance and competitiveness, we've improved immensely since 2019. And you're right that whilst the, whilst the gap is small, I think being able to close it is going to prove even harder over the next uh, four-year cycle if, if we don't get an opportunity to have those competitive, meaningful games against tier one teams come around next world cup we'll be in a pool with one of those teams and if we haven't played them in the last four years then it's going to be pretty difficult to be able to compete with them at the world cup manu samoa's uh, head coach meanwhile in tonga their first order of business is to find a new coach to replace Toto kafu who stood down at the end of the team's world cup campaign but once they find their man just like at lakapi samoa and the manu the tongan rugby union will be focused on closing the gap between the akalitahi and the tier one nations it's expected there will be quite a turnover of players between now and the next world cup for which tonga have to qualify however regardless of the makeup of the squad the tiu's chief executive Peter Harding holds the same view as Samoa Salale Mapasua to improve they have to play the best teams more often. Now I think that it's been very very clear from the World Cup all of the comments from all the tier two nations indicate that we need more games against the top nations. If you've seen the games over the last two weeks they've probably been the most intense physical skillful games ever in history of rugby union they've been absolutely amazing we have to actually be able to play against these teams so that we can provide a gap analysis to the coaches and the people who prepare them physically so that we can try and bridge that gap and the thing that strikes me as far as tonga is concerned is whether you get the games or whether you don't the likelihood is it's going to involve a lot of traveling you're not going to get teams coming to tonga are you we have a number of games that are mooted to be on island next year that potentially could be anywhere between one to three. I think we have to also work at generating games with our nearest neighbours like New Zealand and Australia for A or Maori, etc. But there could be potentially up to three, definitely one game here. That would be great to have rugby in the country. The amount of travel that you're talking about, when you live in the middle of Pacific, it is quite backbreaking to have that travel and it's quite finance-breaking as well. To gather teams to have them here and to play those games, while it's fantastic, it provides an amazing financial stress on the union to be able to do that. What do you take from what Dan Leo from Pacific Rugby Players Welfare has said? He labels world rugby as a cartel and suggests the best deal for Tier 2 will be to go away and form their own competitions. That has been talked about. I've talked to many people about those sorts of ideas over the years, but what eventually comes down to is you need to commercialise games. To have a a camp for one week for a Tier 2 team costs about £50,000. To have a team in a hotel and to be trained at a reasonable level, you're talking £50,000. If you then have four weeks of competition, that's £200,000. Someone is going to have to pay for that. So we can talk about having our own competitions, but how do you commercialise that to make sure that you can pay and provide adequate accommodation, adequate food and adequate services to the players that come in? If you have a look at our team, for the World Cup, we had world-class players in that team. Ben Tamafuna is probably the best tight head in the world at the moment. Sione Havili would be in the top three number sevens. We had Peter Aki and Charles. If we're going to provide high-performance programs and high-performance matches, we have to provide high-performance facilities. At the moment, we struggle to do that. Well, we don't do it. We do the best we can. But by moving away from world rugby funding, how do we do that?
And I guess it goes without saying that all these factors are going to be part of the process of finding a new coach, because some coaches might look at that and say it's too hard. I think in the end, that was really rather where Totai ended up, wasn't it? That he, he tried so hard for so long and couldn't see a way of going any further. He said to me, he just couldn't see a way of getting any more out of the team. That's an interesting point, because I'm no spring chicken here. This is my second time around. And I think the challenges are exactly the same as they were previously. We have better players now, but they deserve a high-performance environment with a high-performance coaching team. Now, that is very expensive to do it properly. Todai said he can't see a way forward. Well, the next case, (laughs) it's an interesting point, and I could see at the end that Toto was very tired and he'd done everything he possibly could to squeeze the most out of the team. To that end, we as a union, this was our most expensive World Cup ever. We've put everything into this to support the team that we had. So where do you go from here? It comes down to resources and at the moment, we don't have the resources. We need to find a way around to make sure that we can provide the team with the wherewithal to perform as a high-performance team. Philosophically, to continually ask the players to play in a high-performance manner without us having the resources to by the high performance environment that's our challenge and it's a difficult one because it's not their fault that we don't have the money to do it (laughs) but you know they expect it but unless we actually get offers of big games from the big unions i don't think it's going to change and i think it's all up to world rugby i think they've been quite fair in the way they go about things but we need to have better relationships with the bigger unions and get better opportunities off them So in terms of finding your new coach, what is the process now? Are you looking for a Tongan to take over or an international coach? Or is that essentially an open question at the moment? That would be an open question. What's going to have to happen over the next cycle with the new coach is that they're going to have to spend a lot more time here while the borders will be open, there's no COVID, etc. I think they're going to have to be integrated more into the union and integrated into the system up here. The nature of the competitions will improve because now without COVID, hopefully without tsunamis and volcanoes. There'll be a greater certainty of competition to be able to put a pathway together. And the head coach of the national team is going to have to be very, very involved in the pathway, but also in working with the other coaches and the other teams to put that pathway together and to identify players. So I think it might be helpful if they're a Tongan person. So that person will be able to spend a lot more time here and understand cultural issues and the local issues a bit better. It sounds, from what you said there, there's no particular hurry. You can take your time as a union and find the right person? No, I don't think that's the case. I think we need to move on this and I think our president and the board members want to move on this and get it done so that the person can probably start maybe February or March and they're on board and ready to go. The biggest issue with a lot of unions, small unions especially, is the one year after the World Cup. A lot of the time this is wasted and you saw with Tonga it was definitely wasted last time because we weren't able to do anything then COVID came up and we kept running into roadblocks all the way but now we have to take this opportunity to get things moving straight away. It'll be interesting to see how many players will come back from the team that we have here. We're going to have to requalify as quickly as possible. So that will mean a coach coming in who's going to need to start talking to players straight away and start identifying how he wants to take this forward into the next cycle. That's Tonga Rugby CEO Peter Harding on the line from Nukualofa. Meanwhile, over in South Africa, Manusina Samoa take on the host nation over the weekend in the brand new W15 competition. This one does have promotion and relegation, and Manusina therefore need to win to avoid dropping down from Tier 2 straight away to Tier 3, where they'd be alongside Fijiana. The Fijians can't go up, but they could finish as high as second in that Tier 3 if they can secure victory over Kazakhstan in Dubai. Just when you thought that Rugby League was done for another year, think again. again. 
Catch every tackle and try of the 2023 NRL Pacific Championship. Australia, New Zealand, PNG, Cook Islands, Samoa, Fiji and Tonga. The 2023 NRL Pacific Championships. Showcasing some of the best players in the game. Every weekend until November 5 on ABC Radio Australia. Your home of rugby league in the Pacific. And the big game to look out for the PNG Kumuls against uh, the Fiji Bati uh, this weekend. Here with Pacific Beat, the Friday morning sporting edition. And I'm Richard Ewitz and beach volleyball star Sherison Toko will be returning to the Pacific Games next month to defend the gold medal she won for Vanuatu alongside legend of the game Miller Pata in 2019. However, this time... The Vanuatu Volleyball Federation is serving up a fresh face on the court to take Pata's place. Hugo Hodge has been finding out more about the new partnership. When Sherison Toko heads to the Pacific Games in Honiara next month, she'll be feeling a greater weight of expectation than most athletes competing. The new Vanuatu Beach Volleyball star is returning to the Games for her second time. And she's out to defend the gold medal she won at Samoa 2019 when paired with Miller Pata. This time, it will be different. Sherison Toko will be competing without the more experienced Miller Pata. People are watching us and, yeah, because it's like a new partner and there's a lot of pressure on us. After winning gold at the last Pacific Games, Toko and Pata went on to bank Vanuatu's only medal at the Commonwealth Games in 2022 in Birmingham. Their bronze medal saw them lauded on home shores. And it has been a relentless performance from Vanuatu, Toko and Pata. And this is a really good opportunity for them to put this to bed. And there you have it, Vanuatu. Pata has been replaced by 21-year-old up-and-comer Majabel Lawak. The young pair had recent success at the Volleyball World Beach Pro Tour in the Gold Coast, where they beat Canada in straight sets to claim bronze. It's a new partner and uh, um, she's like, now she's strong and uh, she's confident in herself. She feels confident and she uh, plays strong. So, yeah, I'm so happy and glad that I can play with her. A key component in the Vanuatu Volleyball Federation's bid to defend the Women's Pacific Games title was securing the gold medal winning coach Michael Bargman's return from Germany for a five month coaching stint. I'm very happy that he's back and he continues to stay with us and we're very, very happy and glad that this year and he will follow us to the Pacific Games, so we're very happy, yes. Bargman says the beach volleyball experience lost in Pata's departure is made up with the younger duo's strong athleticism. Before it was like, um, Miller um, was so experienced with all her like placement in the court and stuff like this. And now we have more younger players, they're more athletic, and there's more to adjust in a way, but a lot of potential. So it's nice for me as a coach to follow them, to work with them, because we can see the uh, improvement every day. And that's nice working with the young development teams compared to, to old teams where everything is quite like settled and that's a great challenge for me. In the new pairing, Toko has found herself in a leadership position. She is leading the team. She's now the more experienced one and the strongest player in the team, and so she's leading. And before, like, Miller was the legend. Toko says she was happy with the new partnership, but she also hopes to see Pata return to the court. It's very good for us. Like, she's still on our side, and she supports us. Like, we are the... 
uh, young girls to represent the country and she's supporting us and helping us encourage us and give us positive words to encourage us so we're very happy that she's still on our side yeah uh, yes i'm so uh, happy and glad that she have a baby and uh, uh, we still want her to be <laughs> yeah continue to play because we saw that she's still fit and strong but uh, i think it, she just want to coach now so we're very happy for her yes I think she could be back there in due course. But for now, Sherison Toko, one half of Vanuatu's beach volleyball duo, she'll be battling it out for gold at the Pacific Games in Solomon Islands next month. And the reporter there was Hugo Hodge. Now, with the Games just three weeks away now, we're going to turn the spotlight on the very first South Pacific Games, as they were called then, 60 years ago. Now, you may recall our Pacific Games storytelling competition, where we invited listeners from across the region to share their stories from past games. And you'll be hearing the winning entries over the next few weeks and some pretty extraordinary stories, I can tell you. But to start our Games reminiscences, we're going to hear from Lethba Movono. If the name sounds familiar, that's because she's the mother of Pacific Beats Fiji Report. To Lithe, and Lithe helped her mum to produce her story about how, at the age of just three, she became the hibiscus girl, the face of those first ever games in Suva back in 1963. This I remember, not just from what I was told, but I actually have this memory of my father coming to my mother's usual fishing ground. I was playing around swimming, I think, in the shallow waters. And I remember seeing my father coming, which was odd, and he came with some white men. They had a look at me, and they were talking. I didn't understand what they were saying. They went away. We then went home, and I could sense the excitement and the nervousness of my mother. And my father was just grinning and, you know, nodding his head and all that. I realized then that they had chosen me. That's how I became Elizabeth. My name is Elizabeth, which is Fijian for Elizabeth. Fiji, 1963. Fiji is my country, the proud host of the first South Pacific Games. The documentary focused on the South Pacific Games, but the backstory was that of a Fijian family coming in every day to watch all the sporting activities in Suva. In late August, all roads seem to lead to Suva. Its wharves ready and waiting to receive those of our 600 guests who would be coming by sea. In the first part of the movie, after they introduced the, the players and all the athletes that came in from the different countries, then they showed this family coming out of a Fijian bure, a thatched house, like this family was supposed to be going to catch the bus. Everyone seems to be coming to Suva, bent on securing a place at the Games for themselves and their families. Special ticket offices are set up in the centre of the city. We got to a place where, where it was like a caravan or a table, you know, somewhere where we had to go and get tickets. We were supposed to be these villagers coming into town to buy tickets. With an air of expectancy, they came from many parts of the South Pacific and from towns and villages of Fiji, all with the same purpose, to see and enjoy the first South Pacific game. I think I was just um, tired, you know, because I was walking along. Uh, But at the same time, it was 
exciting because there were these people. All I remember these European men, you know, people with cameras and my parents. Tennis is played on the freshly resurfaced all-weather courts on Albert Park. We came to watch tennis. And I think uh, some of the memories that I had had to do with my mother not being very pleased with me because I kept on wanting ice cream and stuff like that. I was looking at all the people around me. This is tennis in Fiji in the 60s, and those who watched tennis were mostly the expats at that time. And so I was busy looking around at them and not quite watching. Over 600 competitors and more than 9,000 spectators and distinguished guests are here for this colourful and spectacular ceremony. Some entertainment now with our traditional combination of song and mime, the mehe. I think as far as, as I was concerned then, being the child that I was, I was what we call in Fijian Ngande, you know, I was going for a jaunt. I was just going to watch things, to see things with my parents. And I think the strange thing about it was that there were people with cameras around me. But I didn't know until later that it was for the first ever South Pacific Games. I remember people talking about it, but I didn't understand what it was all about. All I knew that people were coming together to watch games and I had trips everywhere. This behind me here is the uh, botanical gardens. They use that as an opportunity perhaps to create some marketing material to advertise Fiji. So they took pictures of me in various places, various locations, and these were later made into postcards and covers of books and key tags and, you know, playing cards and things like that. I even saw one years later in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. I had someone sitting in front of me wore a shirt with my picture, along with pictures of Fiji, Fiji birds and things like that. I was rather embarrassed, really, because, you know, I thought I looked funny. I still do. Up to now, I can't work out why they chose me. There were people who'd come along to say, hey, that's you. I would want to hide. I kept seeing pictures, even into my adulthood, while looking for um, souvenirs to take back to Papua New Guinea or Indonesia, I saw little key tags with, with me. <laughs> and I bought them all simply because I didn't want them to be around anymore. As His Excellency the Governor declared the games closed, we noticed that the teams have intermingled behind those flags. What began as individual units has become one great integrated procession. What started as an ambitious experiment has proved an overwhelming success. The future of the games is assured. For this to come up here and now, it really brings up a lot of memory. And I, I think for me, it's sort of an emotional thing because I don't have many pictures of my parents uh, together because I actually lost my mother not too long after that. And so this, the documentary, has both of them. So it's wrapped up in what my family was like at that time.
story of the face of the very first Pacific Games, the South Pacific Games, as they were back then in Suba 1963, Elizabeth Mavono, who was the hibiscus girl at the age of just three. And if you'd like to see some archive vision of little Ilya, she was at the Games 60 years ago, then head along to our ABC Pacific Facebook page. That story produced by Elizabeth Mavono and Catherine Grout. And uh, the Games themselves, the... Uh, 2023 Pacific Games in Honiara. They actually start this time next week. The opening ceremony is on the 19th, but the action starts on the 17th. And on the first day, there will be a programme of uh, football and I think basketball, also table tennis, just some of the sports that get away on day one. Incidentally, the medal table, Fiji 1963, Fiji finished top with a total of 82 medals, including 33 gold. PNG were next best on nine. Ten countries involved, which three have got different names now because we had Western Samoa. These days, of course, simply Samoa. Gilbert and Ellis Islands are now Kiribati and New Herebrides that became Vanuatu. How things times change over the generations. Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. I'm Richard Hewitt. Have a great sporting weekend.